Welcome to Regenerative Spaces, a podcast that explores holistic and sustainable paths toward thriving in the fields of agriculture, education, spirituality, and beyond. I'm your host, Stacey Police. I'm a regenerative farmer with a background of three plus decades as a psychologist, environmental activist, author, and educator. This podcast is a space to get curious about the intersections between these different arenas and ecosystems. Today, we welcome Roger Savory, a veteran rancher and holistic management consultant. With a global footprint spanning Africa, Canada, Australia, and the U.S., he's a catalyst for sustainable lifestyles in even the most challenging terrains. Roger's self-developed biological carpeting method for land restoration and livestock management has earned him widespread recognition. Having visited our ranch this summer as a consultant, his insights have profoundly impacted us. His holistic approach, grounded in holistic management principles, fosters a harmonious balance between profits, environmental regeneration, and social responsibility. I'm excited to dive into Roger's journeys, learnings, and the transformative power of holistic management and forging a more sustainable future. So let's get started. Today, Roger, I'd really love for you to share some of the basics of your philosophy that you and your family seem to have developed over time. But how are you today, Roger? Um, hi, Stacey. Thanks. Um, my standard answer is I'm good. Even when I'm bad, I'm good. I like um, it. And that can mean anything. Yes. Uh, but uh, no, I'm good. And it's lovely being here. And thanks for the invite. And uh, you've got a lovely place and a, a lovely home. It's, it's nice. Well, thank you. And um, what I will say is that all I can tell you is I wish that I'd known you a year ago. And does that come up a lot for people after they start working with you? Uh, it actually does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, this philosophy to me makes so much sense. And yet, in a way, it's also not obvious. Uh, so if you would, would you start to unpack for us a little bit of what the basics of holistic management and there's some basic principles that you might share with us. And mm. these are applicable. I mean, we have our avocado ranch that we're looking for. How do we best move into a deep, long future? But they could really be applied to many things. But could you share with us some of those introductory basics for us? So I think when we look at holistic management, Stacey, we have to go right to the beginning, to the source. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1935, Field Marshal Jan Smuts wrote the book Holism and Evolution. And in it, he said to the world scientists, if we didn't understand that the world functions in holes and patterns and spirituality, we would never understand how it works. And that was probably the beginning. So he kind of was a very wise man. He was a Boer general, 16 years old, beat the British in the Boer War, then the British made him a, a general in World War I, and by World War II he was a field marshal. And in fact, at the end of World War II, he was given a ticker tape parade down the streets of New York City. So in his time, he was a very famous man, but for, for uh, unknown reasons, he's been forgotten to history. He also created the, um, the League of Nations and the United Nations. So wow. the man was a deep thinker. Um, but uh, aside from his politics and his law, he also studied nature, um, having been a farm boy and growing up on the farms. And uh, when, when we looked at holism and evolution, we realized he's right. And when we backed off and started looking at holes and how they functioned, we realized that by looking at the parts, we would never understand the whole. But by backing out and looking at the whole, we could understand the parts. And so that's the beginning of holistic management. And then, uh, and then the actual management part was combining um, uh, British military planning from Sandhurst that had been successfully used for about 800 years in battles, um, a planning procedure 
to, un- to help us plan for the complexities of holes. So by bringing the, 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 the best planning procedure together with an understanding of holes and how they function, that was the origin of holistic management. So it's a planning process okay. connected to an understanding of holes and how they function. Now, you mentioned spirituality, and I'm wondering mm. if you could help us understand what he meant by it. Um, so uh, as an Afrikaner, he was a deeply religious man, and, um, and he, he connected it. If, if, you, if you understand where the science was in the 1930s, we hadn't even invented the nuclear bomb yet. Um, so um, so it's, it's quite funny in hindsight to read holism and evolution and go and try and put yourself self in their frame of reference. But what, um, what he pointed out was that matter um, was energy and living matter was energy with spirituality. That was what made it different to dead matter. Uh, anything living had a, a connection, a soul, a, you know, a, you know um, and um, you know, so in the space-time continuum, all energy is always moving and it's always being converted. The difference is um, dead matter or rock or whatever, um, while it has energy and electrons and protons and there's buzzing around in this time-space continuum, um, life has that same energy, electrons, etc., etc., but there's something else. And uh, and he described it as spirituality, and uh, and and we've had nearly a hundred more years of research to look into the spirituality. So, you know, you know, there's, you know, whether we call it God or religion or uh, Gaia or it doesn't matter. We all kind of deeply, intrinsically know and recognize that all life has this spiritual connection. Um, you know, and uh, and that's what makes life different than a rock. So, so the holes and the patterns are important, but the spirituality is just as important. And, I, you know, I don't mean to go too deep right no. off the bat, but does that quality change the behavior of living things rather than non-living things? Is there another way to understand holes and patterns if it has spirituality or well, uh, soul? Ab- absolutely. We, we live in a Judeo-Christian uh, society, so we have to compare it to what we currently know as spirituality and religion. And, uh, and if you look at the biblical references, you realize that people have always been looking for the answers for God. Um, for, but when, when it comes down to it, all living connections have a connection. Um, and you, you will be an elephant hunter and you'll be hunting elephants and you'll find a baby elephant squealing for help and you'll go and help it. Why do you do that? Mm. You're an elephant hunter, but she has a baby asking for help and you have the spiritual connection and you'll go and assist it. Okay. Um, An affinity? There's an unseen affinity? We're all connected Mm. spiritually. Mm. Now, we need to eat that elephant to maintain our lives. But just because we eat it doesn't mean we're not connected spiritually. And so in the, in the tribes, in many of the tribes around the world, you know, they, you know, they go through ceremonies before they kill something. They, they pray to God, thank you for you know, giving me this life so that I can maintain my life. There is the spiritual connection. Uh, very strong in the sand, the Bushman people who um, uh, Jan Smuts lived with, um, uh, Lawrence van der Post spoke, uh, wrote about it. Um, uh, uh, and, and I think in Africa uh, we we were more connected to nature. Um, The industrial world hadn't taken us over, so we had more of this connection to the spirituality of nature. I mean, my happy place is just going and sitting in a garden, being with the... My my church is is outdoors. My church is Mm -hmm. not indoors. It's... it's, I've got to be with nature. There's a... It it soothes my soul. Mm -hmm. Um, And and why would I say that? Um, Because I'm not a religious person. But it, there's a spiritual connection to how the whole functions, and when we see a desert being created and and the ecosystem and the environment being destroyed, deep down we feel rotten. Right. We feel sick. Because it's we, killing life. It's killing and life. And we are connected to all of life, and Correct. that's why there's so much distress right now going on because of the death of 
what's the statistic about two thirds of the planet is uh, yeah. is dead or dying? Done. Done. Dead. Dead. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. We have this intrinsic deep knowledge that it's wrong, um, and and that's that's the spirituality um, side. Um, so. And then, and by the same token, when we see life regenerate and come back, and we turn a desert back into a grassland, and then trees and birds come back, you just feel good. I mean, my job is is I, I have to be honest. My job is very depressing because I travel around the world looking at the desertified land, and looking at all the millions of people who don't know that there's a better way and that we can fix it. So my world is very depressing. Because I see the badness everywhere. And everyone's like, well, how come you keep doing it? Because when I work with people and we do regenerate and fix things, that fixes my soul. That, that, that's like it gives me hope. It's like we, we intrinsically know that healing the land and getting life and biodiversity and rewilding and whatever crazy terms we come up with for these concepts, we know we feel good spiritually. Mm-hmm. when we get the whole functioning again. Um, so I think for, you know, uh, since man started with our linear decision-making, we've done nothing but destroy our ecosystem. And now with the help of Jan Smuts, we've realized, no, we need to look at holes, get them functioning. Then with the help of holistic management, we understand we now have a process to utilize to undo the natural function of our brain, which is to destroy and move on. Now we can build and regenerate. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so they're been, all connected. I've learned about that where I would say that the prefrontal cortex, that, that linear thought logic, can be overused. We need it to get jobs done, but mm-hmm. that we also need our fair share of, of unhooking from that. And being, my own experience has to do with being in a contemplative um, attitude in nature and I find insight comes to me when I do that so Mm -hmm. things make sense and some things come together for me when I actually suspend my mind in nature and would that fit into your model of how that works yes it does unfortunately such a tiny percent of humanity has even the opportunity to do it about a decade ago, for the first time in human history, more people now live in cities than rurally. That's globally. Uh-huh. So we have more people living in cities completely disconnected from nature. There's nothing more unnatural than a city. Right. No, nothing. And there's an effort to move people to cities as a more efficient way of living. Is, is that true? Yes. Yeah, that's a global United Nations push now. It's it's illogical. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we need to be fixing the deserts and getting people out over the land again. Well, so, all right. So let's say we have some land here that we love and we would like to make sure that we're not turning it into a desert. What is some of the thought process that you put us through? Like, talk to me, talk to all of us about what's that process or what do we need to think of? Well, so the very first thing we think we need to think about is what is the quality of life that you desire? It's literally as simple as that. How do you want your life to be? Now, I've been doing this for a a little over 30 years. And in 30 years, I've never had anyone say, well, I want to live in a desert and I want all my springs to dry up and, and I want poverty around me and I want no one to have any jobs and no one to have meaningful lives and I want everyone to be breathing dusty air and everyone had to have uh, uh, asthma. I've, I've been doing this a long time and nobody said that that's the quality of life they desire. Mm-hmm. It's strange, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and yet those are the decisions we are making as a society. We're creating the deserts, we're drying up the wells, we're removing all biodiversity um, and, uh, and, and, and asthma rates are going through the roof. So that isn't the quality of life. So I would start by saying, okay, well, let's describe the quality of life we desire. And uh, socially, you probably want ha- happy, healthy families. Um, economically, you probably want your business to, to run at a profit and to everyone to have a, 
a, a living wage and, and, and earn an amount that they can live a comfortable life. And then environmentally, 500 years from now, what would our environment need to look like for our great-great-great-grandchildren to be living the same high quality of life? Well, they'd probably need clear flowing streams, they'd need rising aquifers, they'd need abundant wildlife, they'd need abundant biodiversity, they'd need happy, healthy livestock, um, uh, uh, croplands, uh, crops growing on fertile um, soil full of life, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, um, trees and, and, and bees and, 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 and flowers. And, and that is probably what you'd probably describe if you describe the quality of life you desired. How far out would I go in my initial thought? Because where I've been is thinking, okay, we have this ranch, the size of this ranch, and what, how can I vision this and my life, our life, at its ultimate peak health and longevity, you might say. Is that enough? Or well, you it, talk about context, putting things in context. Yeah. Do I need to go beyond that? Or is that too broad? Or Well, so what, what we do is there's holes within holes. Okay. And so uh, within a hole within a hole, you, you, you just you decide what is the hole you are managing. So there would be this farm would be a hole that you were managing. But there's another hole within that hole. And that's your family. So you would create one holistic context for the farm. And then your family would create another holistic context for the family. And they wouldn't necessarily be the same holistic context. Because, you know, family values and what the family wants to do would be a little bit different than what the farm wants to do. Because the farm has a couple of hundred staff and, and it has other considerations. But now when you're creating the holistic context... Anyone with veto power over the decisions on the management has to be involved in the creation of the holistic context. So, uh, so I'll just use the farm as an example. The bank manager's got to be here. The local town council's got to be here. The farm workers have got to be here. Because if, if you come up with a great plan and they have the power of veto and they say no, well, what are you going to do? So everybody who's involved in the farm has to be part of creating the context, the holistic context and describing the quality of life they desire. And then when it's everyone's joint decision, this is how the life we want, well, now you won't have the council saying no because they were part of it. It's their context too. You won't have the bank manager saying no because he also desires to see that in the future. You won't have the farm staff going on strike and saying, no, we're not going to do it. It's too much work because they also want that for their future, for their children. That sounds hard to do, though, to get all those stakeholders oh, in one place. It's I mean. very easy. It's called a barbecue. <laughs> uh, yeah, You literally just have a day barbecue and you just, you know, when everyone's bellies are full, you sit down and talk. How mm-hmm. do you want your life to be? Mm-hmm. And like I said, no one has ever described wanting a desert, dry wells, and asthma. Right. We all, as humans, intrinsically want the same thing. We've just never spoken about it. So when I start to build, we start to build this vision, you would suggest I bring in neighbors that, let's say, hold a different view of how they do their agriculture. Let's say they're 100% conventional and that we are moving into regenerative agriculture, you don't separate at this stage of the oh, game. It's cat- we're categorically, all I would have your neighbors. And, and I'll tell you the biggest reason. We're in California. You have a lot of fires. Yeah. Don't you want your neighbor to understand what you're doing and be part of it? Because if a fire comes from his property onto yours, don't you want to be able to phone your neighbor and say, hey, please help us put out the fire? Absolutely, yeah. And you see, if you've got a good relationship with your neighbor and they were part of you helping set up your context, they now know why you are doing all these crazy things you're doing. Right. Because they know how you want your life to be. Right. And, and it, you know, they will have their hole for, for, for their family. And, and hopefully when they see and they learn with you, maybe they might decide it's important for the, their grandchildren that they start changing and start building soils and community and everything so that they have a long-term future. 
Mm. So you start that bigger conversation with mm. all the yep. the family members of uh, because the mm. young ones then will grow up having heard a little bit about it. Exactly. It was interesting um, when I had the grazing, the sheep grazing, mm -hmm. I ended up calling a neighbor, my neighbor, who's the conventional one, and they were very interested in using sheep. They'd just been talking mm -hmm. about it. Yep. They were talking about fire fuel mitigation, which is absolutely yep. something I'm interested in as well, but we might be able to collaborate in that way, even though mm -hmm. I'm also understanding that having grazing animals on our land is important as well. Yeah, they're a vital part because you're in a brittle environment. They're a vital part of uh, carbon cycling, carbon sequestration, and um, and maintaining the mineral and, and energy flows. So, so say a little bit about brittle part. because that's one of your qualities that you like. Is it a missing key? Yes. It's one of the missing keys. Yeah. Can you say what those are and then t say a little bit about brittle because I think maybe a lot of us haven't heard of that. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there are four. Uh, I actually think there's five, but there's four missing keys that are pieces of knowledge that invaded mankind for 10,000 10, or a million years. Um, and the first one is, is Smuts's point that we need to understand that the world functions in holes and patterns. The second missing key is understanding that there are brittle and non-brittle environments and they actually have nothing to do with the rainfall. So you can have a brittle environment with an 80-inch rainfall. Hmm. You can also have a non-brittle environment with a 40-inch rainfall. So it's not connected to rainfall, but it is connected to the months of the year with no atmospheric rain uh, moisture. So, for example, northern Zambia has 80 inches in three months, and then it has nine months of dry. Whereas some of the um, tropical places will only have a 40-inch rainfall, but it's muggy and misty every day of the year. So it's a humidity factor, it's would you say? It's a humidity factor mm -hmm. in the atmosphere, atmospheric an, moisture. An average uh, no, no, not an average not. Uh, days of the year. That, in other words, some places never have a dry day. It's right. always moist in the air. Mm. Um, and then some uh, places have, you know, might have a month of dry. Okay. Some two months, three months, four, you know. And the average, the average long dry period is nine months in a year. But there's an area in Australia that uh, over the last 100 years has roughly had, uh, what was it, 20% of the years they have a 36-month dry season. Okay. So that that's a long dry no period. No rain. No rain for, 36. Up, for up to 36 months. Well, so then let's say you have a brittle environment. Mm -hmm. Non-brittle means tropical, moist all the time. So what's the difference between how you manage that and what well, does that have to do uh, with? Not tropical. So, for example, oh. South Island and New Zealand, mm. it's not tropical. It's bloody cold down there. Mm. But those forests are non-brittle. It's it's okay. wet all the time, so, so it's then not how heat do you related. The difference it's moisture between related. It. Okay, I, I yeah. think I understand. It's mm. not temperature. Yeah. It's moisture. Yeah. And then what's the difference in how you? So what we found is in all the non-brittle environments, uh, insects and fungi cycle carbon, and there are no herding animals. So under, under a forest, you might have chickens or peacocks and pigs, but you don't have herding animals. Uh, and insects and, and fungi break down the majority of the carbon. And in a non-brittle environment, uh, where would you find that's warm, wet and dark for microorganisms to break down the carbon for those nine months of dry season? The stomachs of animals. Aha, uh -huh. someone's been studying. I yes. was. So yes, the warm, wet and dark is found in the intestine of a grazing animal for those nine dry months. And that was Mother Nature or the holes way of keeping carbon cycling. So what we found is in all the uh, brittle environments on the world, uh, there were always herding animals, whether it was the saiga in Russia or the, or the caribou or the bison or the wildebeest. Uh, it doesn't matter where in the world you go, if it was a non-brittle environment, uh, sorry, a brittle environment, there was some form of grazing animals. And the herds were big. They were millions and millions of animals. Humans, to create civilization, wiped out the big herds, and that created civilization. And then once the herds were gone, 
then we had to invent agriculture to feed ourselves because now we had big cities, but we'd wiped out the animals. And when the animals were gone, then the land got overrested. And when the land got overrested, then the land died. Um, so this is this chain reaction that we keep repeating. And overrested meaning periods of time that it's not trampled and eaten. Trampled or grazed or eaten. In other yeah. words, there's no microorganisms to cycle the carbon. Uh-huh. And when that happens, the dead uh, grass plants, they oxidize. And when they oxidize, it's a chemical process. It's basically the rust. You know, it's chemical oxidize. Yeah, so it's um, uh, carbon oxide rust. And there's two versions of oxidization. There's slow oxidization, which is um, uh, where the grass grows gray and becomes unpalatable. And there's rapid oxidization that you commonly call fire. Oh. So you can either burn it or have it go gray and die over 70 years. But both ways it decomposes and it it destroys and that carbon gets released to the atmosphere. And And that that takes it out of the out of the biological carbon cycle mm-hmm. and puts it into the chemical carbon cycle, which is bad. Okay. Well, so then I've got, so we've got grazing animals where they've got the warm, wet, and dark that keeps the carbon cycle going on the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a fourth key and, and that, I, help and me understand that one. So that is the role of pack hunting predators on grazing animals. So wherever we had grazing animals, we also found we had pack hunting predators. So in the jungle, you've got a tiger, that's an ambush predator. Or you've got a, or you've got a, a jaguar, that's an ambush predator. But in, the, in any of the grasslands, you had pack hunting predators, wolves, packs of lions, packs of wild dogs, packs of hyenas. So all the predators in the brittle environments were pack hunting. And the significance of those is that the packs kept the grazing herds tightly bunched to protect their young, and the packs kept the herds tightly bunched, and and because they were tightly bunched, they dung and urinated in such concentrations that no one likes to eat off their own plate that's got their own dung and urine on, so they have to move. Keep moving. So, and that forced the movement and the migration, which then allowed the plants to recover and not be overgrazed because, you know, by the time the plants started growing again, the herd was a couple of hundred miles away. Um, and so there was never a problem of overgrazing because the packs kept the herds tightly bunched. The herds tightly bunched had to completely devour everything under their feet and then had to move because there was nothing to eat. And because it smelt of dung and urine, um, so there was this. Uh, the you cannot have the grazing animals without the behaviour that is induced with the with the pack hunting predators. So if we have livestock, we have to mimic the behaviour of pack hunting predators. I see. So even though when we had the sheep here, they would bunch up at times. They would hear a sound and mm-hmm. they would bunch up. And mm-hmm. even if let's say they weren't being threatened by a pack of coyotes at that moment what you're saying is the fact that they're geared toward that and that they do that behavior we can then um, take advantage of that behavior and and that way they will be on the land in a way that is the proper way to be on the land that will give us what we need Yes. Yeah. And so when you had sheep here, did, was there an electric fence around them? Yes. That was your simulated pack of predators. Okay, got it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that bit, if they went and played with it, it bit them, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's how we're simulating the, um, the, the, the pack hunting predators. And then you have to know how frequently to move them along. They can't linger in one area too long. I mean, for the reasons you stated, like they don't want to eat wherever they've been peeing and pooping, so they have to keep moving. Yeah. That, and you want to break the worm life cycle, and you want to break the tick life cycle. So you want to break the parasite life cycle so that when the parasite is looking for a new host, the host is gone. Okay. So, yeah, that's why if you look at most migrations, they return once a year. And if you look at most parasites, they can only live for about six months without a blood host. Okay. 
So by only returning once a year, the majority of them have died. But this is another example where you were saying, if I got sheep, which I'm really angling for, um, I might also want to get some chickens, which I could bring those in as well to do cleanup. Mm. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so not just one type. Uh, well, biodiversity. That's We're making our decisions for biodiversity. Mm. Uh, life begets life and more life begets more life. So the more life you have on your property, the more other life will be around as a result. Okay. So, so you would say get pigs too. I would say get pigs too. Sheep, goats, chickens. You've got a front lawn, guinea pigs. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I just encourage life. Yeah. Uh, it's how much can you manage and handle but the bottom line is every time you add more life to your, to your herd or flirt or you know, biodiverse herd. So in Africa, I was running horses, sheep, goats, donkeys, cattle, and pigs in the same herd. So I had six species in one herd. You don't have to separate them. So donkeys can be with your sheep? Yep. In fact, a lot of places around the world, they use donkeys as coyote patrol to keep the sheep safe. I've heard that. Um, I've seen a donkey pick up a coyote and just wring its neck. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it was actually quite violent. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen a few things yes. having lived in Africa <laughs> on ranches. Um, so then what was that fifth thing again? You said well, there was a potential then, then fifth. The, the fifth one, I'm still debating it, but I think it's instinctual fear. And I think all humans let's say suffer oh. from it or, or um, and so we have fear of the unknown fear of success fear of but we have what's called instinctual fear and I think it's what's causing such a slow uptake in this knowledge I think it's our instinctual fear uh, evolutionary mechanism I think it's designed to make us wait two generations before we adopt new knowledge Really? You mm. think it takes two generations? So if I mm. have this idea, I think it's a good one. You think on average it might take two generations before we fully adopt this idea? Yes. I'm going to prove it wrong. Uh, please do. But, uh, and, and, I say, and it makes sense if you think about it evolutionary-wise. If there was a new mushroom that was tested and it had, you know, long-term it had negative effects... It would only be two generations before everyone, you know, the 5% are, are, are pioneer personalities who originally try it. If they're still alive, then you watch and you make sure and, and a few more adopt. But, but you generally wait until there's no uh, long-term proof of unintended consequences before there's a major um, adoption of a new So idea. you're saying in order for, let's say, my region to adopt something like this, it may take a bit. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's really sad because mathematically I believe we only have about 60 years left before we're going to have a real cataclysm. Right. And I, I base that on human population growth versus environmental degradation. Um, and about 60 years out from now, I think we're going to be in real, real trouble. Mm. Um, and, and I'm going, okay, well, I hope. It's two generations from 1984 when we presented holistic management to the world and it's not two generations from now. Right. Because if it's two generations from now, we need to be making the changes globally right now. And if we wait another 60 years, uh, the mathematics just doesn't add up. Right. Um, so and, I, and I think we can all feel that in our souls. You know, that's part of the spirituality. I think that's why you're seeing the world as is saying, hey, we've got to do something about climate change because I think we can feel it. I think we, there's a buzz. You know, there's an aura in humanity that's going, oh, we're in trouble. And, um, and, and, and sadly, in the past, before 1945, when a society was in trouble, they just went and invaded someone who wasn't and took over their land and killed them. But since 1945, that's no longer an option because if, Anyone goes and tries to take another country, they'll get nuked, and you cannot fight a nuke. Right. So, so the, you know, it's it's like it's all or nothing now. So now we don't have the option of moving on and taking someone else's resources. We now have to live within our means and regenerate that which we'd previously destroyed. 
That makes sense. And it also makes sense of something that came to me one day. And this is what it was. It said, climate change is an inside job. And I, it took me a little bit to unpack that, but I figured, I finally figured out what was meant by that was that I have to change in order mm. to deal with climate change. I'd been doing um, climate work in terms of helping people look at the psychological, emotional barriers to engaging in climate change, where here are these very intelligent, engaged people that were not engaging climate change, even though it was right in front of them, and mm. why not? Mm-hmm. And there are these emotional and psychological barriers, it seems. So um, having had a near-death experience, I healed myself here on the ranch. And then at that point is when I I thought, well, what do I do now for climate? You know, what's my next role? And I heard climate change is an inside job. And I thought, well, I need to trans... uh, Having worked on myself and healed myself and see that I actually was able to rebound and come back to life and thriving, Mm -hmm. that I notice nature does too. Nature, there's a force there that just wants to keep going Mm. as long as we get out of its way. But that means we need to understand how it works. And that's where you help come in. How does it work in ways that... Yeah, I and, don't know. That and it it's interesting you said that because that's what we thought. You know, we thought if we got out of its way, it would recover. But two thirds of the planet hasn't recovered. Mm, mm. You know, the deserts that were created 10,000 years ago are still a desert. However, in Central America, where the Maya were, when they were killed out or died out or whatever and left, that's reverted to jungle. Why is that? That's a non-brittle environment. So in a non-brittle... It can be left alone. In a non-brittle environment, rest is good. In a brittle environment, rest is the enemy. Okay. Yeah, All so right. So we can't leave it alone if it's, a if it's a brittle environment. If it's a brittle environment, we have to proactively assist it. Okay. And what we're proactively assisting in a brittle environment is we have to protect the top millimeter from ultraviolet light. And that is the assistance we as humans, using human management, have to provide. So what is that a no-till comment there? Is that what you're saying? Uh, like ultraviolet a, light getting into uh, the ultraviolet soil? Ultraviolet light kills soil microorganisms mm-hmm. uh, instantly. And uh, so... Instantly? Instantly. Um, it's like a laser ray gun. Psh, dead. Okay. Dead. Done. Um, so from that point of view... Uh, you know, all the deserts of the, land, of the world, how do we get them covered with an inch of biological matter to protect those microorganisms on the top millimeter from ultraviolet light? That is literally what we've got to do for two-thirds of our planet. It's such a mind-bogglingly big project. It scares us, and we don't even start to try because, it's oh, it's too big. We can't do that. But we as humanity actually have no option. We have to. Okay. Well, that's a cheat sheet right there. I mean, if, if, if I know a few things, if I have a few takeaways here, then we can spread that around, get the idea that we can't not be actively working on the land. We can't be tilling and, and unearthing the soil. We have to understand. Would you say that... A lot of the world doesn't understand that soil is living. Yesterday you said that soil was thought of as chemical. Chemical. And actually it's biological, would you say? Yeah, yeah. soil is a living organism. Okay. And uh, and sand is the chemical. Once you add life to sand, it becomes soil. But the key word is life. So soil is a living organism. And that's what we fail to understand. We think of soil and dirt as soil and dirt. No, it's actually, and it's an extremely complex living organism. I mean, uh, some of the data says that a single teaspoon has over a trillion life forms in it. Wow, a trillion, ta trillion. Right. I mean, it's it's mind blowing complex. Is that an average, or is that a special kind no, of dirt? No, I think it's an average, um, but it depends on the fertility of the soil. Right. Um, uh, and so some of the figures say a shovel load, some say a, a teaspoon load. So that's obviously not that fertile soil versus very fertile soil. 
but it's, it doesn't matter. It's still a mind-bogglingly big number of life forms. And, we, and this is the funny thing. We, we didn't even know that until electron microscopes and DNA testing came. Because with the DNA testing, we suddenly found, whoa, look at all these different you know, helixes and RNA strands. And with the electron microscopes, we could suddenly look in and just see, oh, my Lord, it's just full of life. And whereas we as humans, if you can't see it, you don't know it exists. If it doesn't know, if you don't know it exists, you, you know, you're not going to. So we just saw it as black dirt, not realizing, no, you're picking up a handful of trillions of different living organisms. Now, what make, and, and I mean, just look at the human body. We, there are more bacteria cells in the human body than there are human cells. Really? A single eyelash has 138 different life forms living on it. Oh. One eyelash. You trip me out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so um, uh, you know, and you know, if you think of us as a functioning whole, um, you're a whole functioning whole as a whole person. If I take your heart out, will you continue to function? No. Okay. But if I take you out of your family, will your family continue to function? Barely. <laughs> Barely, but they will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it makes the point that you are a whole yeah. with billions of bacteria cells and, and fungi cells and everything in you, um, and you're a whole functioning whole. So what is the next biggest hole above you that if we removed would cause your collapse? Well, I'll give you the answer. It's green-growing plants. If there are no green-growing plants on the planet, they produce the oxygen that we need to breathe. Right. So without them giving us oxygen, we can't breathe. So the next biggest hole above a human is the plant hole. And humans have already destroyed the plants on two-thirds of the planet. Why would we consciously destroy the thing that's vital for our ecosystem to live on two-thirds of a finite planet. It's illogical. Right. It's anti-life, actually. It's, it's, it's anti-our it's anti own life. Right. Right. So anti-survival. It's anti-survival. So only by being convinced of abstractions that have to do with power or something else are we able to actively destroy... Amazon forest that is keeping the planet alive. That's one things of the, like that. Yeah, I mean the Amazon and the equatorial Africa uh, jungles. Yeah, the jungles and the equatorial zones. That's the one third that's giving mm -hmm. us oxygen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, and the climate change and the heat because of all the heat coming off the deserts right now. Uh, this morning I saw a report. There's a big dust storm blowing out of the Sahara towards America right now. It's going to have huge. Yeah, consequences. Um, expect some big storms this year because um, all that dust in the atmosphere will bind with water molecules, and you're going to see some big storms. But okay. you know, so yeah, we can't think that what we're doing in America or what they're doing in Africa is not connected. We've only got one tiny planet, right? Um, and it's it's connected, and it's uh, we've got to change how we make decisions. Okay, and we've got to look at our world and create policies holistically and. And, and start managing holistically. We've got to get it into all of humans' ethos. Um, well, it's got it's to become the new norm. I feel like during the pandemic, we got a taste of thinking as one planet. Did you? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I think that was a nice little trial run for us. And it was forced by a little virus, but it helped us all notice a few things. It was, I didn't like the linear thinking during it. Okay. Um, I, yes, as humans, we all uh, went like lemmings running off the same cliff. Um, and I would have liked to have seen us, you know, it was a great opportunity for us to look outside the box. But in fact, we got more intrinsically linear thinking. And, and if you study a whole bunch of species that run off cliffs, um, you know, whether the lemmings are the famous ones. Um, but, you know, the springbuck did it in the 1800s. There have been many examples of, of, uh, of populations getting too big and mass committing suicide. Um, and, uh, um, 
And I don't think we need to mass commit suicide. Um, I think we just need to start fixing our resources and, and creating the biodiversity and, and, and creating life and making decisions for life. Because, yeah, we all recognize that we're in, in, in problems on a, on a global scale. And we do have the ability to think globally um, and act locally. Um, but we're just not doing it, I think, because this knowledge is too new and too scary. But, uh, but you know, we, we do this holistic management work on all the continents on the planet. We have success on all the continents. It's like gravity. You know, if you drop an apple in New York or one in California, they'll hit the ground. If you manage holistically in New York or California, you'll get the positive results because it's about how do we want our lives to be. And uh, it, it's literally that simple. I'm, you know, nothing I say is difficult, or, 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 uh, but it's just a different way of thinking. Well, tell me um, how regenerative agriculture, that's something, it went from organic to sustainable to regenerative. And my current understanding, and I believe I am bringing in practices of regenerative agriculture, which has to do with creating health in the soil, and leaving it more healthy and creating more longevity and working with ecosystems and life cycles and, and sort of bringing that whole picture in. How do you understand those two terms or concepts? So um, language affects thought and yeah. thought affects behavior. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of what we've been doing for the last 30 years, we actually haven't had the language to describe it. So that's the first thing. You know, if I say holism to you, what does it mean? Huh? I mean, huh? no one's read Jan Smuts' holism and evolution. I mean, it's 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 taken from a Greek word. None of us speak Greek. You know, holus. I know it um, from a holistic education where you yeah. actually educate all aspects of the child. That's mm -hmm. why mm -hmm. I find an affinity between my education studies mm -hmm. and this land management work. Yeah, and you're an exception. Yes. You're not the rule. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, in the late 80s, the ac academia realized that all the farm kids were sent, all the farmers were sending their kids for training in holistic management, and they were losing students at the big land grant colleges. So they lobbied Congress to get the Soil Conservation Service shut down and recreated as the Natural Resource Conservation Service so that they so because the Soil Conservation Service had a contract with Savory for training 7000 extension agents a year in holistic management and so the only way the academic institutions could beat that was to destroy the whole soil conservation service and have it recreated so that there was no breach of you know uh, contract um, and so that was done um, in, in the late 80s. Um, and that set the whole world back 20 years. And that was based on nothing more than egos being hurt and damaged. And I heard a professor, um, in, in uh, an American professor in Zimbabwe once, um, he asked a villager about you know, the rainfall. And the villager said, well, do you mean effective rainfall or non-effective rainfall? And he said, well, what, what do you mean? And the villager had to explain it to him. And he said... He said, oh, I finally understand. It's like everyone's in a race and we're all heading west. And, um, and the, the professor is out in front and behind him is the master's student and behind him is the bachelor's student. Behind him is the high school student. And way in the back is this villager. And we're all running west. And then someone blows a whistle and says, hey, guys, the finish line isn't west, it's east. And everyone turns around and starts heading east. And now suddenly the villager is in front and the professor is way at the back because when you have a paradigm shift all the knowledge that you gained in the old paradigm is now valueless i love that analogy mm. that does feel true to me because you talk about the villager and i think some of this knowledge is ancient mm -hmm. and it's like are we going back to some of the ancient knowledge that people knew without having microscopes they just knew correct using their five senses maybe six senses wouldn't mm. you say yes yes yeah. maybe more well if the shaman was involved definitely six or seven or eight or, or if you use your spiritual function <laughs> yeah which this yeah. fellow would say yeah 
Um, yes. So, so that's how you're, that's how you might frame what's going on right now. Yeah. So, uh, so the Ted talk in 2013 that my father, Alan did, that finally broke the power of the academics because it went out on social media. Which I have to say to listeners, you should watch that if you're interested. Twenty, the Alan Savory's talk on holistic management. Yeah, it's yeah. Just type in Alan Savory TED Talks, right? And it's, worth seeing. It's, it's yes. had brilliant. They, I, I think the head of TED told um, uh, Dad that they can tell how many different computers have watched it and how many students have watched it, and they say it's their most watched ever TED Talk. Wow. Okay. So, um, so that broke the power of the academics. But um, in the late 80s, when the academics shut it down, that set all the work back over 20 years. And it's taken us until now to recover. Um, And and I don't feel bad about it because it's human nature. You know, I herd cattle for a living. And what we found is when we're taking cattle from one pasture to another, you'll open the gate and, and the whole herd will be standing in front of the gate and no one will go through the gate. And if and then one cow will wander through, and if if nothing bad happens to her, a second cow will join her. Oh! And if nothing bad happens to the second cow, a third cow will join her. But if you give the first cow a fright after she's come through, she'll rush back into the herd, and you will never get that herd through the gate. Okay. Nobody will come through. But if you let the three cows come through and nothing happens and they're completely fine, then a rush will happen. And within three minutes, the whole herd of 800 cows will be through the gate. Okay. So take heart because this yet may. So in the 80s, that was the herd returning. Okay. And it's taken us 20 years to get them all back up to the gate again now. And now with regenerative agriculture, we're starting to go through the gate again. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it is it does use these principles. So if you look at the of definition holism. of re- regenerative agriculture uh, mm-hmm. in Wikipedia, um, it says it basically says farmers regenerating their land using holistic management. Okay. Yeah. As in w- our ego isn't attached to the name holistic management. If we need to call it regenerative agriculture because that has you know, language affects thought and thought affects behavior. People can wrap their head around regenerative agriculture. We're regenerating versus holistic management. What's that? Or the negative stigma that the academics put on it for 20 years while they tried to badmouth something they didn't understand. Or that challenged their ego because they'd spent 20 years studying conventional rangeland science, which had been doing all the damage and... Yeah, so if you have you've spent all your money time becoming a professor in, in rangeland science, and these other guys from Africa are regenerating farms and ranches and having great success, and all your customers are going bankrupt, uh, it really it hurts your ego. Yes, and that's mm. what I was just thinking about was how one of the barriers is for me, it seems, is when we've been farming, for instance, here for 40 years, and we did things a certain way in the early 80s, because mm-hmm. that's what we knew. And then it seems some things work it out. And then now we're reimagining this land. And in some cases, it looks like, oh, geez, we did it that way? What were we thinking? And for me, there's a bit of an issue around feeling like you've made a mistake or that you did it wrong or, oh, how could I have not known? There's a whole emotional suffering pain piece (laughs) that goes with it and trying to move quickly through those. And what I want to say, because education, again, is one of my things, is we're taught not to do a lot of trial and error and learn from mistakes. And it seems that the survival of farmers depends upon being willing to try things. Would you say that's so? Um, well, part of the holistic management process is this process that we call plan, monitor, control, replan. And we're doing it all the time, daily. In other words, we come up with the best plan based on our current knowledge. We, not, we, we presume that decision we're making is in fact incorrect and we look you for... You assume it's incorrect. Incorrect. 
and we that's a new take and we look for the earliest warning sign that it was in fact incorrect so we can change the decision now that goes against that makes every me want to crack up. I that like goes it. against every male <laughs> ego on the planet. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I didn't say that. Because we automatically presume we're right when we make a decision, and that's what men do, and we go charging forward. We but, need that men need to be right. Yes, actually, it's not need, even just yeah. their faults, yeah. right? You've been Correct. told you better get it yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. And so, in holistic management, we make a decision, and we presume we're making the wrong one. And we look for the earliest warning sign. And and so I've been doing this 30 years and I am just as guilty as every other human. Okay. We are wired to make decisions linearly. Um, so don't feel bad about anything. And I mean, and, and the, the journey of holistic management since the 80s, we are gaining knowledge so quickly. Right. So quickly. You know, there are things that I was advising clients to do three years ago that I don't do anymore. Three years ago? Yeah, because we've now got new knowledge. You know, someone somewhere in the world figured out a little bit more of the puzzle and and they put it into the network and the network can very quickly go, ah, okay, we, you know, you know and, and off we go again in a new direction. You know, um, I, I would say the, the most recent, um, you know, kind of aha moments have been, you know, the, the power of mycelium and fungi. Um, in the ecosystems and uh, and the role that they're playing, now they're secretive uh, uh, life force. You know, they they're under the ground. We don't see them until we see their fruiting body. But the the largest living organism on the planet is a fungi. Um, you know, How does that factor into your uh, system here? Like that's something new, and that took you adopting new information. Mm-hmm. And it brings me to a question about the Savory Institute, which your family, your father created, let's say, mm. you've been part of, and now you've moved on to your own, and why? So, um, yeah, and in fact, yeah, perfect segue. So um, a, 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 um, a chap uh, wrote a book called Voltaire's Bastards, uh, Saul is his last name, and in it, uh, uh, the crux of the book was, was he studied... Um, uh, basically study bureaucracies and Napoleon invented them to get rid of the inefficiencies of monarchies. And so they've been in existence for a while, so he studied them to find out if it had made things better. And he, in fact, found that it had made things worse. And uh, the, the crux of the book, the, the conclusion is what he figured out was institutions by their very nature are lack common sense, lack humanity, and are impervious to change. And so as soon as I realized that my father's organization, the Savory Institute, um, <laughs> lacked common sense, lacked humanity, and was impervious to change, I couldn't be part of it anymore to keep researching and keep learning. Um, so both my sister and I pulled out, and we've continued to work on our own. But if you look at the Savory Institute, the precursor to that was Holistic Management International. And if you look at what holistic, where people who were trained in the 80s under Holistic Management International, the language they use and where they got to knowledge base wise, they've stopped. Okay. And then all the knowledge that was gained after that by the Savory Institute, the people who do that and are part of the hubs, they've stopped. Um, and so I've continued to work on, and I, I feed knowledge back to both organizations. And individuals in the organizations can benefit from it, but the organizations themselves can't. Um, They're not it, teaching the new. Yeah, it's okay. just it's just a it's just a thing of how organizations work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't man, mean they're bad people. It's just a function of organizations. A structure that it's got a, set up around you that allows you not to <coughs> continue flexibly adapting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I recently came up with something that helped me, and that was a realization that I am unique, complex, and constantly changing. And as long as I think of myself that way, that's why it's hard mm. for me to define myself because I mm. notice that those things are true. So I can't really compare myself to anyone else, mm -hmm. and I'm constantly changing. And the complexity make it almost defies defining. Um, 
And yet it seems that that's kind of the definition for life itself, would you say? Well, no, that's no. the Western world's mm. definition since the Industrial Revolution. And that, and we've factory farmed 150 years of children, oh, and we have put this knowledge into people for the last mm. 150 years. And it, it, the unintended consequence of it is massive, truly Say something massive. about that. Well, you look at it like this. Uh, so we get a whole bunch of five-year-olds, and we put them together, and they're five-year-olds, and they all learn from each other. So you've got five-year-olds teaching five-year-olds. Well, next year, they're six-year-olds teaching six-year-olds. Well, then they're 10-year-olds. Then they're 18-year-olds. Now we release them as adults. At what point did new knowledge get into that age group? At no point. Now they become adults. They have children. So now you've got an adult toddler who gives birth. And they put their toddlers into this education system. So now you've got an adult toddler with no knowledge who has children who puts them into this factory farming children's system. And now we get a second generation of adult toddlers. Now we've done that for five complete generations and we wonder why we're floundering and lost. We have no, no connection to ancient knowledge. We have no knowledge of how families are meant to function. We have no knowledge of how communities are meant to function. And we're trying to do everything linearly and it doesn't fit our souls. It doesn't fit who humans are. But we... Our learned, so we have a deep ancestral subconscious knowledge that this is wrong. Yes. But we've got five complete generations who this is all they know. Right. So there's no one to teach people a better way because even our great-grandparents were raised in the system. Right. So if you want to see humans living normal, functioning, happy, healthy lives... Go out to the border of Angola and Zambia, where you're so far from any Western civilization. Go and sit in a village there where they've never seen a white person. And go and watch the baby being dragged around by the two-year-old, who's being dragged around by the five-year-old, who's being dragged around by the seven-year-old, who's been all the way up to the 18-year-old. Then there's the mother. Then there's the grandmother. And... You will never see a child cry. You will never see children fighting at all. All their emotional support needs are being met. Now, by our Western standards, these are the poorest people on the planet. I have never seen happier, healthier people in my life. Mm-hmm. Right. And that emotional happiness, well-being quotient is an absolute necessity as well mm-hmm. as physical mm-hmm. Well-being, yeah, well, and those they, are not factored and they, in. And they say that those people, if they get beyond toddler age, they have like no diseases, no Western diseases. Mm. They are just healthy, right? And I, well, I've, they're pretty fit. <laughs> well, I um, want to know so, more about that, but we're going to have mm, to come back mm. to talk about that. <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you, as we conclude. If I, you know, someone who has a home with a yard or an apartment with a balcony, can we all apply these concepts, this holistic context? Um, uh, A woman by the name of Anne Adams uh, wrote a book 20 years ago ago called At Home with Holistic Management. Okay. Um, uh, Obviously, I wasn't living in an apartment, so I just briefly looked through it. But it, it was her attempt to describe how we can use this this mm-hmm. knowledge and this context setting um, in, in everyday life. Now, like I said, it was written about 20-odd years ago, so the developments that have happened over the last 20 years won't be in it. But I think the bottom, the, the, the concept would be there. But, okay. but, yeah, anyone can create a holistic context, can describe how they want their lives to be, and then can make decisions towards achieving that. Um, you know, I live in the city now because I'm raising my children and uh, – you know, we only eat organic and we grow, you know, I've just planted 22 fruit trees in my garden and, uh, and uh, you know, we catch fish out of the, out of the river and, uh, you know, we try and do our own little part to just have happy, healthy lives within the, the tiny little city property that we've got to live in. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so so you can do your bit at whatever level. But I think for the biggest issue facing humanity is we've got to get this knowledge of how to create policy holistically into our leaders. Um, okay. And that that's going to I think it's going to take seventy or a hundred years, but we've got to start. So you know, just studying what this holistic management idea is, how to create policies holistically. I think that's probably the most that city-based people can do to really help our planet. Great. Well, thank you again so much for being here. And will you come back and Abs- talk to us? Absolutely. It's okay. been great fun. Good. That's a wrap for today's episode of Regenerative Spaces. If you found this episode valuable or thought-provoking, share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll keep the conversation going over on Instagram. So join me at Stacy Poliche and share your thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. And before we go, your support means the world to me. If you have a moment, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach even more people looking to spark sustainable change in our world. Stay curious, stay inspired, and until next time, this is Stacey Poliche, and you've been listening to Regenerative Spaces. Regenerative Spaces.